Drive-by Cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Oh, hello. Luminaries and wise men tell me this is season three, episode 38 of Drive-by Cinema. The podcast where we watch some movies so you don't have to with me, Rick, and my co-host, Paul. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Uh, welcome, everybody, to Drive My Cinema, Series 3, Episode 38. We are, as usual, colour-coordinated for this recording, mm-hmm. except when I'm wearing a waistcoat and you're not, uh, but this time... You're wearing a waistcoat? Wearing... No, no, I was on that one occasion, if you remember, where you thought I looked excessively smart. Last week, Paul, I castigated you. When do you ever do that? When do you ever do that? Because you had used the word, in the previous episode, you'd used the word lobby in relation to the cinema. Yeah. And is that the right said that I said it wasn't very idiomatic. It might not be. Uh, a listener, at least one listener that I know of, Adam, has sprung to your defence <laughs> in what is increasingly being known as the cinema lobby wars. <laughs> I not to say defense in the American way. Are you going to try and edge your way out of this by by claiming some sort of uh, Grand Britannian advantage here? Well, I think it is a more American term. I do think that is true. Uh, Adam cited. For- Can I just stop you there? Why should you conform to idiomatic popularity? We'd have no new phrases if we did that, would we? Oh, listen, I'm not a prescriptivist. I fully agree. I'm a descriptivist when it comes to language usage. Mm-hmm. I welcome infinite diversity and infinite combinations. As long as you can make yourself understood. And let's face it, Paul, I knew exactly what you meant. I just was surprised, perhaps. I think I was surprised because I, I didn't know why one would need to wait in a cinema. In a lobby. lobby. Yeah. For me, going to a cinema is not a process of going to the ticket desk saying, I'm here, you know three quarters of an hour early, where can I wait <laughs> while my cinema is prepared for? Well, I could have waited outside and watched the Tangerine Army turn up for their home game. <laughs> the, uh, the, yes, I see. I see. If I wanted to. In pursuance of the... Thank you, Adam. Oh, listen, he cited references. He sent me... He, he sent me, like, a, an advert trailer <laughs> from American Cinema... A, lo- a load of animated uh, cinema snacks sing Let's All Go to the Lobby. To the tune of Binley Mega Chippy, is that right? Yeah? <laughs> Binley Mega Chippy. <laughs> I-, I don't think I've heard the Binley Mega Chippy tune. You got something like Binley Mega Chippy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's tune, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. There's also a Simpsons parody of that very same advert as well, just to underscore the common reference point that that whole idea, that concept of a cinema lobby represents. Mm-hmm. There you go. Chastened. I mean... And a rare a rare retract, retraction from Richard, although it did include a humble brag in the middle of it, so what do we expect? I don't know whether you've looked out... <laughs> Over the beach near near your dwelling, Paul, over the sea. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen a vessel out there bristling with electronic radio and listening equipment. No, I haven't, no. You haven't? Oh, well, if you should, 
then you should know that I'm simply conducting routine marine research. <laughs> and you shouldn't consider... <laughs> just because there is essential, what's the word, infrastructure, you know, extraction and energy production facilities in, in your area, doesn't mean that I'm in any way... It's not hostile, is it? No. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's in reference to. But there we go. Again, this is citing us in the grand sweep of history. Oh. Oh, you're talking about the warnings that came on our phones. Oh, the phone warnings, mm. yeah. No, no, I'm I'm referring actually to the Russians sending secret spy boats out really? to look at all of our wind farms. You, you not heard that? Well, they are highly bombable. Are they, though? I think they'd be difficult to bomb. How would you hit a single like wind turbine with, with a bomb? Would it be devilishly accurate, wouldn't you? Well, aren't they all sort of guided these days? Well, they are if you're not Russia, because they can't buy all of the special electronics, can they, anymore? They have, have to scrounge. Don't have a friend called China that makes them all. Maybe. I don't know how friendly they are with China, because all their drones like and stuff, they've been buying like commercial off-the-shelf cameras, haven't they? And Really? Yeah, yeah. And, and when they shut down some of their jet fighters, they've just found, like... Uh, consumer GPSs like strapped <laughs> to the, the dashboard. <laughs> How is the war going? It, it, it's, it's kind of reached post-winter stalemate, hasn't it? Although there will be offensives, I, I imagine, on both sides. No, we're expecting spring offensives, aren't mm. we? And the Russians have been pushing back, but the Ukrainians are getting a lot more new equipment. They've got a lot more tanks and stuff. So who knows? I mean, morale amongst the Russian troops can't be that high, can it? But I think I think extra conscription has just been brought into law, hasn't it, by the parliament? By the, but I mean, by the vigorous debate society that is the uh, one of the bicameral <laughs> is, it, is it bicameral house? I don't know. I expect to be corrected by listeners on that. If you're in the Russian troops at the moment, what happens is you spend a lot of your time sort of shivering in a trench somewhere in Ukraine. And every so often, a drone flies over and drops a grenade in your lap. <laughs> Better than piranha juice. Piranha juice. What's that? That was my one idea. We could have remote-controlled cars and drive over the Russian tank uh, tracks and drop piranha juice on. But apparently, I think this would be a war crime, wouldn't it, using chemicals in that way? Ah, in case piranha people got juice. It on their fingers okay. and stuff like that. Yeah, well, unfortunately, the Ukrainian drones, they're now, I think they're running up against problems that the, the Russians are now finding ways of neutralising the drones. So they need new drone tech. So What, hacking the Wi-Fi? Yeah, it's not Wi-Fi, is it? But it's, it's longer range than that for a start. What is the system that drones use to communicate with, with Ground Zero? I don't know uh, exactly, because I'm not into radio control like tech. Bluetooth is just radio wave, isn't it? Well, yeah, of course, yeah. And Wi-Fi signals are just radio waves, aren't they? I mean, yes, it's all radio waves, yes. Oh, sorry, I didn't realise. Oh, what's that thing that you do that nobody does where you put your phone next to somebody else and you ping images? <laughs> NFC. Is that radio waves too? It must be. Yes, it's all radio waves. Or infrared, waves. could it be infrared? Nobody uses infrared for that anymore. Oh, no. okay. It's too slow. Yeah, It's slow and inefficient. So, answers on our postcard listeners uh, about how drones are operated. I'll tell you what did used to have an infrared port on it, though. That was... The Apple. Newton. Oh, well. Uh, that sounds like we need to go straight to our <laughs> straight music. Straight to music, yeah. 
What the hell are we talking about this week, Paul? Well, I mean, I, I almost made a wrong step in, uh, you know, in my homework this week uh, because we'd elected to watch the movie about Steve Jobs. Okay, when I came to choosing to watch it <laughs> a couple of nights ago, there are two veritable choices. There are two. Yeah, there's yeah. Jobs from 2013. Starring the, the first one, yeah. Starring uh, Mr. Kutchner, okay. And uh, there's this one, 2015, directed by Danny Boyle. Yes. And it was this one we're supposed to be watching. So Correct. Mm. The Danny Boyle, Steve Jobs. And the Newton oh, does yes. get a mention. It does, yes. Yeah. Now, at this point, before uh, this is a forward to this entire podcast, which is, I want to say... There is nothing wrong with Apple products. <laughs> well, I was thinking, you know, are we going to talk about maybe we're just going to be debating Apple products? But yeah, okay, there's nothing wrong with Apple products. No, if you enjoy Apple products, if, they yeah. are they have a design a- a- aesthetic which some people exactly. really like. You know, if it's you, minimalist. If you enjoy a nice fruit bowl to put on your table that doesn't hold fruit, then by all means buy an Apple. <laughs> The build quality is exceptionally good. They're premium products. They have a premium premium price price tag. Premium price, yeah. And if you are swimming in that ecology, if you've got an iTunes account and all your stuff is on the Apple, then I've got no complaints. People buy Morgan cars. They aren't the fastest cars in the world, but they look nice. (laughs) It's just never been my bag. I mean, in many ways, it ought to be. I mean, I like minimalist architecture. We've discussed this. Uh I like my concrete negative spaces and stuff i like negative i like minimalist uh interior design but yes. when it comes to my tech i'm a maximalist so you don't believe the sophistication and simplicity as steve famously said no i mean i'm prepared to accept it may be my personal defect but for me, I want all of the knobs all the bells and whistles what richard's saying is he's a sucker for alienware and it's, it's neon and it's glowing lights Absolutely. Well, I mean, if we go back to the hi-fi days, I may have said before, but I had an Amstrad oh, yes, they were recording studio for, thing for glowing, with, mil- with millions of like knobs, like a DJ thingy. Yeah, I mean, it in was... Britain, neon lights were kind of almost banned, weren't they, in most town centres? The Amstrad hi-fi was the nearest you got to a bit of neon glow, wasn't it? <laughs> neon was banned. Apart from well, Piccadilly Circus and stuff like that, you didn't see much neon. We still don't, do you, in British British towns? We don't want it hanging on your oldie worldy high street, do you? <laughs> Next to your pub signs. Well, it's all Willy and Hill shop, anyways, these days, isn't it? So true. So true. why not? Is what I say. So what you're saying is, you know, you've got no particular aversion to Apple. It's just, it's just never been your slice of cake. That's right. That's right. But what I do have an aversion to is the people that own them. No, that's, that's not fair. <laughs> they are pawns in the game, aren't they? That they, they are, they are followers of a cult, effectively. To be honest, the computer hasn't. It's the phone that's become the cult. I think of recent, isn't it? You know, I mean, this movie doesn't get us up to that. No, it doesn't. No, no. I think that's interesting because the phone really is ha- is the one way that Steve Jobs got it right. Mm-hmm. Finally, fully. Well, we touch on this when he talks about the Newton and its stylus. I mean, yeah. he realised that phones had to be touch phones and not stylus phones, didn't he? Which was... Well, know. I'm not sure I agree with him. But I accept that actually the tech that enabled that is what makes the iPhone smartphones full stop great. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, he has to be given credit for that. Although he wasn't the engineer that figured it out, was he? Let's face it. We're made to understand that by the film that Steve Jobs is not really about 
doing the code or building the hardware. Well, you know, his 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 other part, Steve Wozniak, says you can't code it. Oh, that's true. I think he could code, couldn't he? I th- I imagine he's the kind of like boss who did some coding, but then secretly all of the engineers took all of his code out. <laughs> you know, later. Uh, As opposed to Bill Gates, who really could code. People used to say of Bill Gates that he was a second-rate software developer, but a first-rate marketeer. Now, not a lot of people would think that Gates was a good marketeer. I mean, he's not showy presentation-y like Jobs was. No. But, let's face it, he... Maybe business development is a better word, but he put MS-DOS on every new PC. That has given Microsoft near-total dominance since that point, right up until now. Even now, even now... They have market share for all business applications. Not a personal marketeer, but certainly somebody who really knows his marketing strategy or strategic marketing, I think. This whole film is really written, by the way, by Aaron Sorkin, you know, the master of people walking in corridors while they talk. Yes. There's a bit of that in here. There is quite a lot of that. Famous for the West Wing, of course. This... Film is really, I think, an exploration of like the great man theory of history, right? You know, I've heard it said that it was Sorkin's attempt to try to understand what it was about Steve Jobs mm-hmm. that gave him this superpower, this cult leadership kind of thing that he inspires. And I've got to say, I'm not sure the film answers that question. I don't think anybody really understands that, that question. I mean, the film at the start makes him out to be a complete asshole. Well, it, I mean, it's not a sympathetic treatment, is it? But getting ahead... Does it redeem him? Does it redeem him by the I, end? I, I don't know. I mean, it, it kind of... It teeters almost by, in a bipolar way between kind of a warts and all, very unsympathetic, very unflattering presentation of him. and But then kind of sort of swings to triumphalism at various moments, you know. And maybe maybe he is irresol- unresolvable as a character. I don't know, in real life. But I thought as a movie, it remained a little bit unsatisfying because I didn't really know what the movie was trying to say about him. Mm, that is a good observation. It's told in three basic acts, yeah. which represent three phases of Steve Jobs' career. The first one was when he launched the um, Apple Macintosh, which was... 1984, I think it was, because uh, the advert referenced the novel 1984. 1984, of course it did, yeah. Famously so. Directed by Ridley Scott, that advert, of course. Mm -hmm. The dystopian Orwellian future woman comes up with a hammer and chucks it through a screen. It's told three acts, and each act is supposedly behind the scenes backstage before one of Jobs' famous keynote presentation launches. Which is a thing, you know, I I mean, Steve Jobs certainly popularises this. I know Microsoft used to do them a bit as well, perhaps aping Apple. I'm not sure why you would think to put a techie guy or a business guy in front of a load of fanboys (laughs) clapping and stomping their feet. Steve Jobs obviously could pull it off. Steve Barmer less so. Right? Oh, yeah, I, I think when you were talking about uh, Bill Gates not being a great marketeer, I, 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 I think a lot of that comes out to the fact that 
Steve Barmer was the front man for quite a long time, wasn't he? And he was just... I mean, one, he was sweating <laughs> profusely in a satin shirt or a silk shirt, which never looks good, does it? Okay. But whooping and just generally being over-enthusiastic about about his product, wasn't he? So, so yeah. They weren't the most comfortable sort of launches, the Microsoft launches, were they? No, no. But here we see we, we, we see him backstage as being supremely confident and a consummate presenter, you know. Somebody who's just unflappable. And he knows exactly what he wants. So he has a very clear idea of what he thinks will work. Mm-hmm. So the first one is the launch of the Apple Macintosh. The Which essentially, is... sorry, that, that's essentially a fall from grace, isn't it? You know, he's going into that launch, riding the top of the world, you know, ready to become a multi-billionaire. And apparently Apple was Apple Mac was a failure. I didn't really understand that. It, well, the Apple Macintosh, the original one, was a failure. Oh. And we can talk about why that is. The second one was when he set up another company having been fired from Apple, effectively. Next. Which was the next, yeah, the next cube. The cube, yeah. There's lots of semi-humorous kind of talk about the fact that he wanted it to look like a perfect cube, which meant it had to be millimetres out as... As, you know, as a shape. And then the third section is the launch of the iMac, when he'd returned to Apple mm-hmm. and rehired him. And, and he here he soars back into glory, doesn't he? Okay. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it stops way before... It stops way before the iPod, and way before the iPhone. Way before the iPad, yeah. yeah. Uh, the iPhone makes Apple... Extremely dominant, you know, the dominant smartphone provider makes them one of the richest companies in the world. I mean, in computer terms, uh, they still don't have the same, I don't think, market share as Microsoft. Something like 10 to 15%, I think, of the whole, like, desktop, laptop, tablet. We don't also see the end of Steve Jobs' life. Where, you know, rather unwisely, his response to his cancer is to try and treat it with some, you know, cockamamie... I didn't know that. Yeah, he goes all woo and tries to treat it, or not treat it at all, uh, or treats it with some some homeopathy or some... I mean, there are only passing references to his recreational drug use here. He was, uh, in the 70s, you know... He liked to drop his acid quite a lot, you see. And there's only one or two mentions of that where he says to his... uh, the marketing manager, you know, just before they're about to head on stage and they're in this high key moment, why don't you drop some acid and, and find out, so to speak? I think she's saying you're talking crazy nonsense. I don't know what you're talking about. Blah blah blah. So, so yeah, we don't really see. It is a very much focused uh, sort of view of Steve Jobs in his job, in one key key moment of his, of his, his life, repeated, which is you know launching the product. So yeah, we don't particularly see Steve Jobs. In any other sort of setting, I think the other movie uh, starring uh, Ashton Kutcher, okay, isn't so one high intensity, and uh, we see Jobs outside of a work environment too. So, so yeah, different perspective, and you do see. Uh, did you watch that as well, Paul? I did, did you, some did... time ago. Ah, oh, okay. I was tempted to watch it because I'm interested to see how they differ. Di- but... Completely different. Completely different. I mean, this is ve- this is very hard hitting, isn't it? No holds barred, kind of like a has a Wall Street Michael Douglas feel to it all. This also feels like it could have been a play, very much so. Yeah, yeah. You know, it could have been written that way, just except for those three sort of backstage moments. There are some flashbacks to 
previous eras, aren't they? Yeah. And Michael Fassbender playing Steve Jobs does a great job of portraying Jobs in three or four different eras. We see him like long hair with a beard, engineering in the garage with Wozniak at the start of his career. Yeah. Uh, we see him long haired, clean shaven for the Macintosh launch, and then just pre 90s short hair in a suit as he's doing yeah. the next finally, launch. In, in, and 98, we see him as the classic kind of glass, bespectacled, kind of shaven headed. Uh, sort of uh, polo, polo, uh, yeah. polo wearing jobs that we, yeah. we recognise iconically. Yeah. Now this film though begins with uh, an archive clip of Arthur C. Clarke oh, yes! making I think it's a really good movie, uh, movie, movie beginning actually. Well it's Danny Boyle isn't it? Mm-hmm. Danny Boyle, obviously he didn't write it and it, you know it's a Sorkin written movie but Danny Boyle is adding some great touches here. I think a lot of what is good about this movie is the direction. Not so sure about the writing. It's a clip of Arthur C. Clarke holding forth with a young lad uh, and telling him all. They're, they're standing in an old fashioned computer frame, room. Yeah, yeah. yeah massive mainframe with spinning tape stuff behind him. And Arthur C. Clarke is explaining how in the future you'll do everything on the computer, everyone will have one in their home. Your movie tickets, you your will... theatre tickets, your, your, yeah. your travel bookings. <laughs> He was so prescient, that guy. Amazingly so. And you were saying, you know, it won't be, it won't be anything alien. It will just be, you know, an extension of yourself. And the report asked a really good question. It's like, you know, will we become to some extent computer dependent? And Arthur Clark says, well, yes, yes, we will. Yeah, but he he also said it will make it possible to live anywhere you like and still do business. You'll be able to do business from uh, the countryside rather than having to live in the city. Mm-hmm. Very, very prescient. Who, who could have known how right he would be? Uh, and then we're in Cupertino, 1984, for the Mac launch. Jobs is having a fit because <laughs> he can't get the Mac to, to say, say hello. hello. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, he thinks this is absolutely essential for the demonstration. I mean, he does a Dominic Raab, doesn't he, basically? you know, I mean, these days, this kind of intimidatory behaviour, uh, throwing essentially what is a tantrum... Uh, it would just not be acceptable, would it? Yeah, you're right. It's the kind of bullying that it's the kind of bullying I do to you every week, Paul. <laughs> Standards of bullying are getting lower and lower, though, aren't they? You know, and at some stage, think about what Dominic Raab said in his own defence. He basically said, you know, you, you have to have the ability to criticise your underlings, subordinates, mm-hmm. or whatever, he's, to get the best performance out of them, to deliver, you know, to to do the things you want to do. And that would be a great defence if Dominic Raab or the entire government had at any stage showed any evidence of being <laughs> remotely competent. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with the idea, you know, robust criticism needs to be present in government, but I don't think it involves personal ins- insults necessarily, does it? So Richard is quite an humble from home. <laughs> Only for a moment, mind. Only That's for a moment. Passive aggressive bullying. There we go, it's gaslighting. <laughs> Look, this great man theory of history. Yeah. And this whole film exploring what Steve Jobs does well. Uh-huh. I mean, he gets it wrong here, right? If you ask me. Go on. I mean, it, it didn't matter. I don't think it mattered. Why would it matter that the Macintosh said hello in, in the meeting? 
Because he, he he points out several times that you know he wants this to be a computer that is approachable, friendly, and something different. Yeah, but nobody is going to be speaking in 1984. No one is going to be speaking to their Macintosh. No, no, <laughs> and it's not going to be speaking back. I, I expect either very much. Although you know, when W. H. Smith had the ZX Spectrum on a stand, kind of like so you could work with it. <laughs> Uh, yeah. In '83, when it was really hitting, you know, when it was when the wave was really breaking, you know, and it was it was selling tens of thousands a week. You know, people did come in there and try to speak to it. So. <laughs> let's yeah, let's put this in context, right? It's '83, isn't it? '84, you know. We're talking about an era where Apple were making eight-bit computers, the Apple II. This is what Wozniak and Jobs have been working on. There's a discussion. We flash back to a discussion between. Wozniak and Jobs, where Wozniak is saying that they want all these expansion slots so they can let people put different things in the computer and do what they want with it, mm-hmm. and made open system. And Jobs is saying, no, you want two slots, one for a printer and one for a hard drive or a modem or something. That's all, you know. Jobs' idea is to keep everything closed. Mm-hmm. And this is the infuriating thing about Apple, but to keep a closed ecosystem that they can control and monetize and monetize it yeah yeah Wozniak was saying but you know the enthusiasts who buy these things want flexibility and want to be able to do things with them and here we see supreme confidence he was like well they can go and buy a pc or whatever you know (laughs) he's convinced that he's right they had these grand projections for the macintosh then I, i think the advert had gone out during the super bowl they're predicting selling a million in 90 days or something like that, well, don't they? I think everyone seemed to be aware that the price that it was coming in at, at 2499 or something, whoa. it was way higher than any other. I mean, we're talking $8,000 in today's money, aren't we? But look, set against all of the other 8-bit computers at the time, the Macintosh was revolutionary. In this film as well, they also say something. There's an offhand comment about Microsoft copying what Apple were doing. Yeah. But here's the thing. My understanding is the whole GUI, op, you know, desktop metaphor of, you know, paper files and folders that the Apple operating system and later the Windows, not much later, but sometime later, the Windows operating system. About 3.1 Windows, wasn't it? About 1990. Yeah. Yeah. That whole metaphor and that whole operating system gooey stuff, that wasn't invented by Apple. No, That no, was invented by Xerox Park, yes. is my understanding. Yeah. They, had, they invented the mouse. They invented that whole metaphor. It was Apple who copied it, as Apple always did. And, yeah, you know, Microsoft also copied it from Xerox Park or from Apple. Who knows? It doesn't matter, does it? Mm-hmm. It's a bit rich to call Windows out, Microsoft out for copying when that's all you're doing. That's one of my problems with apple cultism is this i think there's a fake idea that steve jobs was a great innovator i don't think he was i think he just has he has a knack for productizing and taking the credit for a lot of Mm -hmm. stuff oh yeah definitely definitely i'd agree i think we have to come into the age-old the two age-old arguments here about apple that raged back in the day you know the 90s and early 2000s one was the look and feel suite okay yeah you know, if you compare it to modern day Windows 11, I'm not sure there is much difference between the operating systems uh, these days. Although Windows does remain heavily text-based, where it shouldn't be, where it could be, it could be like iconographic, couldn't it? You know, the drop-down menus are exhausting and torturously complicated. And, and yeah, but they're the same on the on the Apple stuff. Okay. Surely, 
I've never actually really used a Max, I wouldn't be able to say. Look, my first exposure to Max was when we were at college. Right. And so this is in the era where you had a college computer room with, what, maybe 10 computers in them? That's right, yeah. And you just go along and hope there's one free so you can do whatever it is you want to do. But since most people didn't need a computer for their course, they often were. And you could go and play Risk on, on those. So, so they had, I think, what must have been Mac Classics. You're right, they did, yeah, yeah. So that was a few years after the Mac, the original Macintosh. I mean, although that Macintosh was enough of a disappointment, didn't sell very much to get Steve Jobs fired, the fact of the matter is that Apple continued to be a bespoke, well, not a bespoke, a boutique kind mm. of computer provider, a premium brand. Boutique, yeah. You know, there you are. We, we go to college and that computer room was not... It wasn't all Apples, but there was a lot of Apples in, uh, of Macintoshes in there, wasn't there? So the other big debate that used to rage, I guess you might call it boutique, but used to be called proprietary versus generic. Oh, God, yeah. Which I guess these... Well, Steve Jobs seems to want to call end-to-end, uh, and I guess these days generic we might even call open source, which it has its close similarities to open source, doesn't it? And you might say this was Gates's genius, was to have the intellectual understanding to realize that his product would do better as a generic product with access to more users you know whereas jobs in his computer days you have to say came out came out worse didn't he really by by insisting on on this proprietary approach to to manufacture well i mean he, he carried it through into the iphone did he it? it's just yeah i store what it was called yeah yeah it's a totally walled garden and, you know, you had to have a specially shaped power plug all the time up until very, you know, in the last year mm-hmm. where you, the EU has forused Apple to use right, to repair USB-C. Kind of yeah. yeah, so... Uh, I think Apple's, Apple's answer to that is just to put an adapter in the box. <laughs> <laughs> so as we head into the launch, you know, there's a big thing about getting to say hello. And, of course, the engineers can't get into the Apple box why? Because of Steve's fastidious need for end-to-end control. There's no tool that they've brought along that can open the machine to shove in more memory or anything like that. They, you know? they don't use ordinary screws. <laughs> they must use torques or whatever, or some proprietary thing. Here's the other thing that's often people often say about Apple, uh, Apple Macs and stuff, is people go, oh, it's more intuitive. Hmm. You know, the, the Apple is just slightly different and always has been from the Windows approach, in ways that I'm sure infuriate users who are familiar with one or the other when you swap over. Like, in a Windows system, when you open a program, the menu bar at the top, file, edit, blah, 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 which is exactly the same ordering as an Apple system, by the way, that is attached to the window. So if you move the window around, the menu goes with it. Whereas in an Apple... The menu bar is at the top of the screen. Yes. And if you move the window around, it stays at the top of the screen. So you have to know which window is active oh, wow. to understand what that menu is. It's not. It's no more intuitive. I'd say it's less intuitive. Are, are, you, therefore, used to are you therefore saying that Apple is the Benetton of computer fashion? <laughs> what, how, how would you characterise the Benetton? Benetton? I remember Benetton. The Italian fashion house. Huh. Um, See, And, you know... It was all. It was very much about status signalling, but it was also a little bit about virtue signalling, wasn't it? If you bought Benetton, then you were for the United Colours of Benetton. You believed in a happy, clappy world, you know. In some sense, you were saying that you might be a better person than other people. 
Well, here's the other thing. Apple's, for the longest time, and probably still, for all I know, have one mouse button. Whoa. Whereas, for me, like having used a mouse with two buttons, well, actually, one, two, three, four, five, five buttons and a scroll wheel, you know, I can't be doing with less than four buttons. Now, Richard has, on previous occasions, um, expressed his disdain for Microsoft hardware, apart from the Xbox and their mice. And their mice, has to be said, are top-notch. The mice were brilliant, absolutely. Listen, I think the Surface is a clever bit of kit. It's just a bit funny that it's a bit of a flop, right? <laughs> it's like the Apple Macintosh, Paul. <laughs> it's you and another 249 people who ever bought one. <laughs> it's not that much of a flop. I mean, I'm not here to defend it, because I'm, I'm not a huge fan of it. But it does sell about $3 billion. Yeah. It's just wonderful screens, really good resolution on the screens, has to be said. Here's another thing that's annoying about apples. <laughs> I'm glad Richard prefaces, prefaces with a, you know, I really like apples. I really love them as computers. I've got nothing against them, but go on, Richard. In this movie, he makes a comment that uh, the Macintosh looked like a, a goofy smile. Yes. Got that kind of lopsided thing. So I suppose this is done for entirely aesthetic reasons. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But, of course, like all computers of that era, Apple Macintoshes and all of the other ones, all IBMs, they all had had a disk drive, a 3.5-inch floppy disk drive. But the Apple, unlike every other disk drive and every other computer, had one thing missing on the disk drive. What was that, Paul? An eject button. An eject button. But that's okay. You can eject the disk in software, Paul. <laughs> how do you do it on an Apple Mac? I don't know. I've never used one. I must. I have. I have used one at college, obviously. But I don't. You remember. did use one at college, yeah. There are actually two ways I think of doing them. You could probably click on the drive. You probably have to hold down the command key. That stupid key that looks like a hash key with rounded corners. The Apple key, and then. Click on the drive, and then you could probably click eject. But there was a quicker and easier way for the very intuitive Mac users to do to do it. Stick some pliers in. Look, if in dire straits, like all disk drives, you could shove a little pin in the little hole. But you didn't want to normally do that, obviously. No, no, no. Paul, there's a very easy way of doing it on the Apple desktop. What, what do you think it... I don't know. I don't know. Well, what you do is you, you take your disk drive icon... You drag it with your mouse. Recycle bin. Drop it into the. Uh, it's not a recycle bin on Macs. It's a it's a waste paper basket. You drop it into the waste paper basket, <laughs> and that will eject. That's it's intuitive, isn't Can it? Can you reclaim your your, your disk drive driver <laughs> after that or not? Or is it? Well, no. You'd be glad to know that it doesn't delete anything when you do that. If you wanted to delete everything, of course, you would open the drive the disk up, and then have to drag all the files into the waste paper basket. No, no, dragging the disk itself oh. ejects it. Obvious, isn't it? Obvious. It's just intuitive. It is intuitive, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, the launch of... The triumphalism of the N94 launch is pretty much met with, uh, you know, uh, a pathos of his his summary dismissal from uh, from from Apple at the hands essentially of the CEO is that right yeah who's been dragged yeah, Scully, back John Scully John Scully yeah. who later on he calls hey Mr Pepsi generation because he used to run Pepsi Cola okay 
Uh, and uh, he's been dragged back from China, John has been dragged back to China to this summary kind of uh, executive meeting where Steve is got rid of. Uh, and, you know, you get a sense of the burning humiliation that Steve must feel because, you know, he feels like he's the founding forefather of this company. Apparently they sold only 35,000 Macintoshes in the first six months or something. Yeah. I'm sure they sold after that, though. Absolutely. I mean, it's a line that does continue. And, I mean, it, it's an iconic computer, no question. no question. It still looks good. Well, it looked better than it does in this film because they'd used a real Macintosh, hadn't they? Yeah. And it's suffering from that uh, like discoloration that beige plastic goes after after a few years. As the new ones looked much cleaner, much greyer. Yeah, much greyer, yeah. Less, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Jobs is fired. He sets up a new company called The Next. He takes with him his sort of right-hand woman, Behind every great man is a great woman. And in this case, she's a Polish-American called Joanna Hoffman. Joanna, that's right, yeah. Played brilliantly here by Kate Winslet. Is it Kate Winslet? All right. It's an astonishing performance. It's a very Meryl Streep-esque performance. It is. It is really Meryl Streep, okay. So then we get his boondock ears, where he's wallowing in the gutter, trying desperately. We skipped over. We skipped over the essential thing about this film as well, which is also the story. His daughter, Mm. yeah. A girl who he denies is his daughter at the start, with very little evidence. You know, there's a paternity test, mm-hmm. and he's claiming that it's because it's only 97% true that... There's a 24% chance it could be somebody else. I think his maths is right there, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, it may be, genetically mm-hmm. speaking. The girl's mother is convinced that he is the father. So here we get these these awkward moments with him and his child when, you know, the mother turns up asking for alimony or whatever where he's this fastidious, intense person, and he can't relate to his daughter, can he, at all? Because, I mean, she's trying to connect and ask him dumb questions about the computing system that she's asked before, and you just can't see why she's doing that. He can't relate to anybody, Paul. Mm. He's clearly an asshole. Mm-hmm. Whereas Wozniak comes across very sympathetic. He's the kind of guy I identify with, I think. Although he's continually undercut, isn't he, by jobs? Yeah. There's a moment where, although he's now working for Next Jobs, he has invited all of the ex-Apple guys... To the launch. To the, to launch, the second yeah. launch that we see. Yeah. Yeah. It's 1988, so it's four years later. Was turns up, and he's proudly wearing this rather large watch, which Jobs remarks on, and Was shows it off. It's exactly the kind of thing I might do, I suppose. It's the kind of watch that is built on old vowels, isn't it? <laughs> it's a Nixie watch. Nixie he's watch, Nixie that's Nixie it. It's great, it switches on when he raises his wrist, which is very clever. And Jobs asks him how to put it forward an hour, you know, if he changes time. Sets him up, doesn't he? Yeah. So he has to, like, unscrew it and get a tool out. And he says, well, that's a great watch, was he? But what about if you're on a plane doing that? You get arrested for detonating a bomb. And Was just can't see it. And so Jobs is making the point, sure, you're an engineer. But I've just got this thing about recognising great products. Later on, he calls was Rain Man. So, so he, you know, he he does have a derogatory and demeaning oh, yeah. attitude to, to everybody who's clo- close to him in his life. Well, was feels patronised by Jobs because I think Jobs said, you know, owing to something, an interview that he'd given, he he says, you know, uh, you got a free pass. I'm going to give you a free. You got pass. a free pass. Yeah, yeah. Was goes off on one. He says, you know, this the next cube. You're selling it six thousand five hundred dollars, 
but it needs an HD, uh, sorry, a hard disk drive, which is optional, but it's not optional, and a printer, and it'll come in at, you know, $12,000 after all of that. Now, we get an insight into the Next. Apparently, this is a subplot that Steve is using the Next to get back into Apple. I didn't really understand the tactics involved there. I'm fairly certain that Sorkin, and probably Boyle, not really computery guys. Mm. I don't think they totally follow the tech story side. Obviously, they've had advice and they've learned about it. But I don't think they're native to it. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. I think some of this is a bit confusing. I think the idea is that... He's going to make it that on purpose so Apple buy it back and therefore he has to write the operating system for it. It didn't really make sense, the whole that whole that whole shenanigans. At this point, he says off the record to a journalist that they don't have an operating system yet. But the assertion is, and he mentions this to Sarah, doesn't he, mm-hmm. that he's going to have his really clever engineer guy who he's brought on board. We're supposed to get the idea that Jobs can just motivate brilliant engineers to do stuff for him, even though he's an asshole. And I guess he obviously did do that, because otherwise we wouldn't have these things. The idea is he's going to write the most amazing operating system that Apple are then going to have to buy for their product range, exactly as you say. The Next is a Unix-based system. I guess you'd never use the Next machine, because most people haven't. (laughs) I did, I did use it. It was forward-looking because it was internet-connected, wasn't it? I mean, all computers at this point were becoming, you know, networkable. Right. Is that uniquely innovative? I don't know. Building a computer around a Unix shell that was also stylish. I use the Next machine purely as an internet-connected terminal. Because rather like the original Apple Macintosh, when you come up with a new computer with a new operating system, there's obviously... No software you can run on it because it's brand new. All hail the Sega. Was it this? Was it the Amiga? What was the answer to the Sega Saturn or the Sega Mega Drive by Amiga? I can't remember. Or the Atari answer to it. The Jaguar. Yes, the Atari Jaguar. Launched with I think sixteen games. Well, this is the genius of Windows, right? From the mm-hmm. Microsoft platform is they bring out Windows, but you could still run your DOS programs in a little box on your Windows machine. It was built on a dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, it's backwardly compatible, and they maintain that. That is an know. astonishing thing about Windows, yeah, yeah. So it does mean that you end up with a lot of software that looks old-fashioned. And a huge amount of bloat, too, yeah. But it means that you're retaining this enormous library of useful software, and people can see a path to upgrading. And relatively conservative usership, too. Yes, yeah, which is what the business fraternity is all about. They don't want to risk anything. They used to say this about IBM, didn't they? Nobody got fired for buying IBM. (laughs) We then see Jobs relaxing before his talk by washing his feet in the toilet. Yeah. Which is apparently something that he used to do. (laughs) Well, running through this movie, there's a nice take on his personality. Uh, His uh, post-tab-dropping days, where he kind of explains things always through these weird kind of slightly wacky analogies. So he was talking about the price of the Mac at launch and Wozniak was saying, you know, who's going to buy this stuff? And he says, hey, wait a minute, okay. You don't fly fly first class to arrive at the runway before anybody else kind of stuff. Yeah, first class and coach arrive at the same, same time. time. You know, nice. <laughs> and he had all these kind of explicatory analogies that, that don't mean that anything. don't really mean anything, yeah. <laughs> He should write greetings cards. He really lost... He missed his vocation there. So we don't really focus on the failure of Next, but, it's you know, we assume that it's a complete failure, as it was, I think, historically speaking. 
But it did get bought by Apple. That's the key thing. He did for half a billion, yeah. yeah. During all of this uh, prep for the next launch, John Scully, his old boss that fired him, comes to him. With the answer to the Palm Pilot. He says that he's getting hate mail for having Jobs fired. I think you see a flashback to the incident. And you see that it was actually the board who shit-canned the Mac and fired Jobs. And Jobs had gone to the board with... Uh, and Scully gave him an ultimatum. Yes. It was either him or Jobs going. And they chose to fire Jobs. But Scully got the reputation as being the man who fired Jobs. So, so I think he, yeah. he, he was, was I think he was quite keen on Jobs, wasn't he, it seemed? Well, this is it. You know, we, we get some of Jobs' backstory as an adopted boy uh, with, obviously, uh, attachment issues uh, to parental figures. And you can see that John is some sort of parental figure within the company to him. And, you know... Seems to direct a certain amount of goodwill towards him, despite the fact it's cutthroat business, you know. I think we then get a bit of a montage, don't we, of mm-hmm. what happens next. Is this where we see the Newton? Yeah, the Newton is invented and delivered by Apple. So, yeah, so John takes his Pepsi generation <laughs> ideas to the computer industry and comes up with a thoroughly useless Newton. <laughs> now, okay, you say thoroughly useless, right. Let's get this straight. Have you ever used a Newton? Right, Richard, I'd be mocked, and dare I say, in the context of this movie, bullied about using a Filofax to this day. <laughs> there is nothing that a Newton could do better than a Filofax <laughs> at 25 times the price. Look, the, the Newton was, like the Macintosh, was genuinely ahead of its time, right? It was a handheld PDA that you wrote on w- with a stylus, and it recognised your handwriting... Kind of, uh, most of the time. Can you take phone calls on it? No, you can take phone calls on it. What use is it then? It had an infrared port to connect to other Newtons and you could beam your business card to other Newtons. Did you have one, Rich? No, but I worked in a company that loved all of this kind of tech. Did you have a Palm Pilot? Well, this This was before the Palm Pilot, Right. right? Everything that we know about the PDA, which all of which presaged what we know as a modern smartphone, in a way was typified by the Newton, and Newton had done a lot of that. I mean, I think there were some similar devices around that were keyboard-based. The Scion might have been around about the time of the Newton. But the Newton was pretty revolutionary. I mean, Compact were just coming into play at this point, were they? They were becoming popular at this point, Compact. Compact was going to come later. Later. Pocket PC and all that stuff. The Newton was pretty astonishing as a device. But, I mean, it wasn't by any means perfect. It was ahead of its time, let's just say. How well did it recognise handwriting, I wonder? It was... No. Okay. Rudimentary. So, the funniest game that we played on it was the write song lyrics and see (laughs) what it came up with as a consequence. And I wish I could get an emulator and play it again because it was funny. But it was amazing, you know. You'd never done anything like this before on any system that I'd seen, any consumer device. You wrote anywhere on on the screen... Whoa. In your handwriting. Yeah. Okay. And then a second later, it would go, blink, and it would say, you know, hello, or whatever you'd type. And, you know, if you wanted to erase it, you scribbled it, and it would recognise you'd scribbled, and it would go, boop, with a little animation of uh, of it disappearing. It was clever. Yeah. I mean, Jobs is very dismissive of it. Jobs got rehired. They Apple buy next. Jobs got rehired. The first One of the first things he did was basically mothball the whole Newton thing. In the movie, he says something about it's the stylus. You know, why use a stylus when you've got like ten of them? He's right, though. You know, touch screen. I can touch. I don't have to be holding. I can. I don't have to put anything down to move from touching the screen to doing something else on the keyboard. 
with the slightest, I've got to put it down and then, you know, take my hand back to what I was doing before, you know. He makes a fair point. I don't think it is a fair point. Look, I mean, obviously, you can't write with your finger, can you? Mm -hmm. So if you want to use handwriting, the stylus is the way to go. The question is, and I think partly what the iPhone and actually the BlackBerry proved, is you don't need to handwrite things because it's actually quicker to tippy-tap things out on a, on a keyboard. Yeah. What, what do you think? Do you agree? Well, mouth-typing these days, obviously. Mouth-typing. <laughs> <laughs> well, mouth-typing is a modern equivalent of using your uh, the stylus on the, the it new is, one, yeah, because yeah. It, it gets it wrong at least 80% of the time. <laughs> but no, I mean, I think the real recognition is that you can do it on a keyboard. And that was the clever thing about about the, about the iPhone, right? So we get to the iMac launch, don't we? Okay, and all of this is weaved in with his achingly awkward attempt at rapprochement with his now adult, young teenage, sorry, his adult teenage daughter who's headed off to Harvard, who he refuses to pay the tuition fees for. Yeah, we learn that apparently because his ex... His wacky ex, I mean, she's off, she's off with the wind chimes and the incense, isn't she? Well, she, she came to him initially because he, uh, she'd been awarded support, maintenance, whatever you call it, paternity yeah. payments, which Jobs was paying, but it was a you know minimal a minimal amount, amount. He'd bought them a house to live in. That's right, for like a quarter of a million. She paid fifteen hundred dollars. Have it blessed. <laughs> so the the impression that we're supposed to be get supposed to be getting is she's kind of out for the money, and we hear that. She sold the house now for half a million dollars. That was why Jobs was angry. And as a consequence, he, he told Lisa, his daughter, that he wasn't going to pay her Harvard tuition fees. At which point, one of his engineers, Andy Hertzman, apparently had stepped in and paid Lisa's tuition for her. And he's, hor- he's horrible about that, isn't he? I mean, he doesn't really become a better person throughout the movie, does he, in any way? Does he, though? I mean, it, there's a slight arc. There is. He sort of um, reconciles with his daughter, but yeah. No, I mean, but as Andy says, in, in somewhat of a cowardly way. Yeah. Uh, throughout the film as well, the running joke is there's two Andys. Yeah. Whenever they say Andy, they always say which Andy. <laughs> they always have to. Pretty weak joke, isn't it? I think that's Sorkin's writing, though. To be honest. So yeah, I think some of the counterpoint here is you know, do these great men inverted commas you know is it tenacity or is it simply meanness that makes them the way they are? I don't know. I mean. It's kind of left as a question mark, isn't it, over the whole movie? And was is asking, as he always has, as he had in the first session, been asking <laughs> Steve Jobs for recognition, recognition for the, for the Apple, Apple II, II, II engineers yeah. Yeah. who now are being laid off by Jobs, I suppose. And Jobs makes a great point. It's like they're, they're, they're going to be the only people in the unemployment line with, with mansions, you know what I mean? So they can deal with it, he says. Yeah, and he called the Newton a little box of garbage. <laughs> now, his daughter later makes a really good comment about the iMac just prior to its launch. She says, I can't remember the exact phrase, it's like, it's like an oven from the Jetsons kind of thing. <laughs> no, she said it's like Judy Jetsons Easy Bake Oven. <laughs> Easy Bake Oven, yeah. Which, you know, I, I guess that idea has crossed our, our minds subliminally. She kind of takes it back later, but I think, you know, she was speaking She's the right. truth. Yeah, She's it, right. Look, I, I mean, I don't know if you remember that era. I mean, I do, it's yeah. true that that iMac, when it was launched, looked sort of like nothing else. It certainly was a break from all of the beige boxes that computers were routinely. There's a whole design ethos uh, that's based around iMacs and the 
the Sony Ericsson's of the era, which is called uh, Futuristic Oceanic Splash. There was also like water droplets behind them in the adverts. And these very curved, futuristic kind of Britney Spears video kind of looks. But it spawned, the iMac spawned all of these copycat devices. Like everything suddenly had to be translucent, blue and see-through. And using far too much plastic. (laughs) It's huge, you know, it's thicker than a 1970s TV. It it, it went on for years, that shit. I mean, that was a real crime to have perpetrated on us. Look, it's designed forward. And obviously, it's kind of seductive, but ultimately, it, it was bound to be a fashion that went out of fashion. Yeah. I guess the, the thing is, you throw a computer away quicker than the fashions change, but you don't throw, necessarily throw all of the other things that you bought in the, in the same <laughs> aesthetic away. <laughs> so he, he kind of breaks. I think there is, yeah, I think they do point out that he is changed because he's never late for his launch. He's always supremely confident. He's on the rooftop kind of arguing or... Uh, working out with his daughter, and he misses his cue, doesn't he, for the sh- for the launch? And he's saying to her, by way of an explanation for his behaviour, he's saying, "I'm poorly made," and I've heard it explained that one of the themes of this film is that Jobs is driven to be a perfectionist and to produce these products in the way that he wants them exactly, mm-hmm. because he's trying to control the product and deliver that perfection that you know he can't. Doing himself, he can't fix himself, but he can fix the problem. He does speak from the heart one moment, doesn't he, John, about feeling rejected by his by his natural parents. The way he tries to connect with his daughter, this is at the very end of the movie, is he points to her Sony Walkman that she's been listening to since she was a little girl, since, since 1984. <laughs> he says that's a bag of shit. <laughs> Basically, yeah, he's saying, what, yeah, what is that, carrying that around? I'll put, he goes, I'll put... Thousand songs in your pocket, you know, 500, 500 to a thousand songs in your pocket. And we're supposed to understand from this is he, he's about to invent the iPod. First of all, I think that's bullshit. I don't think that's how mm-hmm. it was done. And this is another annoying thing, you know, about the way people treat Apple is you, you'd be given to understand that Apple invented the freaking MP3 player. They didn't invent it, no. They did not. No. no. I had the first MP3 player. Oh, what's it called? It was the Z or a ZX, didn't it? It was the R- R- Diamond Rio. Oh, right. And it was just, it was a tiny thing, but smaller than a cigarette packet. It You put a memory card in, it had about enough room for one album on it. Whoa. Maybe slightly more. But it was very light. It took one AA battery. Battery lasted for ages. And obviously, it was really easy to swap whatever album was on there on your computer. But by that time, we had we had non-skip CD portable CD players, didn't we? That could hold eight CDs or something, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And then after the Diamond Rio, so was the iPod got, really that revolutionary in terms of what it could provide? Because the iPod was a hard drive based player, so it had many, many more songs on it. You know. It could do like 500 or 1,000 songs. But it wasn't the first. Again, a year before that, I think, I'd bought the Creative Labs Nomad Jukebox. Whoa. Now, that was about the size of a portable CD player and about the shape, like a toilet lid, (laughs) of a portable CD player. And it had a 6-gig hard drive in it. Whoa. So you could... Just loaded up with more music but than compression anybody wasn't as powerful in those days, was it? No, it uses the same MP3s we do now. Really? Absolutely. And it could do clever things as well. It could do gapless playback. 
it could just like mix one track into another and stuff like that. It was great for the car. I had with me, with it, I bought for it, a thing that looked like a tape cassette with a wire coming out of it. Oh, you stuck and that you, into the... You shoved that into the cassette player that all cars had in that era, <laughs> for some reason. Wow. And I could plug the other end into my Nomad jukebox and play whatever I wanted on it. And get ferromagnetic quality. Superb. There's actually nothing wrong with the quality of uh, tape. It's a lovely warm hiss, yeah. You don't get a hiss when there is no <laughs> magnetic tape passing by it. Oh, right. Okay. I thought it instantaneously put it on the magnet, magnetic tape as it passed under the heads. No, 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 no. It has a direct... It has heads of its own. Ah. So it's inducing a magnetic field directly. Okay. That's why I'm never going to receive jobs, obviously. However, all of that said, look, I mean, what the... I mean, that Nomad jukebox had a pretty shit user interface. Mm -hmm. Had a terrible little LCD screen that was difficult to see and a bunch of buttons to go up and down the menus. Whereas the real innovation of the iPod was the scroll wheel. The scroll wheel, yes. Now, that was capacitive touch, right? Yes. The first time we'd really seen a capacitive touch device. With no electrocution, yeah, yeah. That wasn't controlling whether or not your bedside lamp was on. So, yeah, beautiful. You could to navigate the menu. I mean, it still had an LCD screen. It wasn't much better. But to navigate, you just whisked your finger around it. Brilliant. Really pleasurable to use. And the clicky button in the middle. That's an innovation. But the basic idea of an MP3 player with a hard drive with hundreds and hundreds of songs on it, I mean, that was not new. It just seems to be credited to Apple all the time. But, sure, capacitive touch... Building that into a smartphone. I mean, f- no, first they did a, a touchscreen iPod, I think, didn't mm-hmm. they? So you had the scroll wheel iPod, the white one. That's right, yeah. And yeah. then you ha- eventually they gave you like a touchscreen iPod and then the iPhone. I think that was the order, wasn't it? True. It's still better than a Kindle. I mean, what did Jeff, Jeff Bezos ever invent? <laughs> The funky, it's still the funky page-turning experience. This is it. All of these things were not made by those guys. Uh, all, I mean, you know, all the design was like Jonathan Ives, wasn't that guy's mm-hmm. name? Yeah. The uh, the industrial designer. And he wasn't the techie. He didn't write the code. He didn't come up with the, the ideas. He was just an asshole. <laughs> but we're reviewing this in the context of the uh, major shareholder of Louis Vuitton becoming the richest man in the world. And we've had some feedback, you know, saying people don't like don't like Elon Musk. Which, you know, each their own. I'm not sure what he's like as a person. But I think we can fairly... You s- probably guess that. I think we can <laughs> fairly say that maybe he's done more to advance the world than Louis Vuitton. All I'm yeah, saying is, you okay. know, uh, tech billionaires, compared to the, to the rich people that pass unseen in our societies, you know, they tend to get a harder time because of their profile, don't they? I see what you're saying. Uh, I mean, I think, yeah... I think you're right. Can there be any doubt that... Not that he doesn't court court controversy, Mr. Musk, but there we go. Can there be any doubt that Jobs, Gates, Musk have all radically changed, you know, the way we live our lives? Mm -hmm. Or rather, the engineers and people that they supported for and guided and worked with, at least. I mean, we have that flashback where he's trying to sell his original Apple idea to John as a CEO, and he's saying, you know, imagine this, you know. Let's not say, you know, putting this to the select few, but putting this on a desk in every home, uh, we're talking about the biggest upheaval of power and opportunity the world's ever seen, you know. I think, you know, they were evangelists for a new kind of meritocracy, weren't they? In a certain sort of way. Not that it's turned out that way. What, like, not a utopia? That's weird. (laughs) 
I think we've got to score this film, Paul. We do. We're not scoring Apple products. No. <laughs> We're scoring Steve Jobs by Danny Boyle. Okay, plot, dialogue, and the rest. I, I have to say, this didn't involve me as the other jobs as much as the other jobs movie. I, I just wasn't engaging, mainly because there's no respite from the portrayal of Steve's personality as being abhorrent. You know, there's there's very little light in the ways represented here, uh, and that kind of just drags the whole movie down for me. And I I don't really think it explored enough. Either the tech, because we just get these perfunctory launches, don't we? We don't actually really see any any creative or technological journey here, which I'm sure must be part of his story. So I'm going to score it a 6.5. No, a 7, because the stuff with his daughter is, is, you know, it's human and it's engaging. I think you're right. I don't get the sense that this script is really getting to the truth. There's no major insight there, is there? No, there's no insight. I don't really buy the sort of cuteness of it. Mm. it's trying to portray this thing about all oh, the relationship or the development or lack of development I just don't that doesn't, yeah, doesn't I'm seem down to 6.5 actually I've changed my mind yeah yeah. I'm going to I'm going to call this a 6 mm-hmm. I don't think it's Sorkin's best work how about to acting acting now here I think some good work here I thought Fassbender with his multiple phases of jobs was quite excellent mm-hmm. Joanna I thought Joanna was strong Kate Winslet, Kate Winslet does an amazing yeah. job. Yeah. And I think I've heard her say that this was like, she feels this is one of her strongest, strongest favourite roles. Christian Bale was attached to do jobs at one point. Do you and know, I thought at one point, I thought, is that Christian Bale? Yes, I, I, me too. Fastbender Fast looked like him at one point, yeah. very much so. The like sec- in his second phase, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Acting is really strong here. Oh, and Seth Rogen as Wozniak, very... I very didn't realise it was until the credits at the end. I was like, oh, right. So I'm going to go... I'll, I'll hit a nine for this. I'm going eight. Okay. Tech appeal. Tech appeal. Oh, I hear booze in the gallery. Uh, for me, it's just... much, did we? It didn't really... It didn't really speak of, you know... I mean, come on, there's a, the whole garage start, isn't there? You know, the garage startup. And we don't get any of that excitement. You know, it's the fact they've chosen one... You know, what is it? Eight, 14 years of his life, essentially. And I'm not sure that was the best choice. I think... As I've said, the iPhone was his greatest triumph. Mm. So why stop short of that? Exactly. Or are, are they just trying to say actually there was no tech appeal? It's just flaky products and a great, a great salesman. I don't know. But even so, that thesis isn't clearly presented in the movie, is it? So. And if it was, then it was. You know, the the iPhone is the antidote to that idea. Yeah. So yeah, it's a five, isn't it? It's tech a four point five from me. If you come into this film for tech, you're going to be disappointed. Absolutely. I don't know what... We can leave it at that. Okay, so overall... Overall? Oh, gosh, it's hour 30 now, isn't it? Heck, what do I do? It's... <laughs> it's times it by six no. from me. It's a six from me. I, I'm going to give it a seven for Danny Boyle's touch. It is kind of gripping in a way, but I think breaking it down, it a lot of it feels lacking. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Paul. Okay, done and dusted. Richard... I think it's my turn to present some choices to you, is it not? Yeah, maybe, maybe. Okay, I have three. Cho- I've got three choices for, for which to choose this week. Okay, oh, yeah, so here one. they go. Uh, the Void, about which I know little or nothing. The Void. Maybe it is nothing. Maybe that's the secret. When the lights went out, which is about power cuts in 1970s England, something that might become opposite in the next few months. <laughs> Especially if the uh, Russians destroy all of our wind farms. <laughs> And uh, no SIBO. 
Nocebo. Okay. Which we said on several occasions we're going to watch, but never got around to. Tempted though I am to watch a film about nocebos, I have to watch a film about power cuts in the 1970s. <laughs> I knew you were going for that one. So that's When the Lights Go Out. When the Lights Go Out. Okay. Oh, When the Lights Went Out, which is it? It could be either. <laughs> You're asking me to be knowledgeable about these things. You're looking in the wrong direction. Paul, you make it so easy for me to bully you. It's called When the Lights Went Out. That's what I said. All right, okay. When the Lights Went Out is next week's movie. Thank you for listening to us rant about Apple products for <laughs> Too long. an hour and a half. <laughs> Until the next time. Ciao for now. Goodbye. See you on the next one. <laughs>